came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves Radio waves Radio waves She sees radio waves She sees radio waves Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 9th of May 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Today we are speaking with Dr Ivy Wong, who researches supermassive black holes and the evolution of galaxies. As one of the initial co-leaders of the Radio Galaxy Zoo project, she'll give us the heads up on this fantastic opportunity for citizen scientists all around the globe. And that's followed by Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News Highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So first up, we cross over to Perth in Western Australia to speak with Ivy. Hello, Ivy. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr Ivy Wong, who is an Australian research astronomer working as an ICRA Research Fellow in Perth at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. Dr Wong studies the physical mechanisms that drive galaxy evolution in nearby galaxies. She researches supermassive black holes, and she works on large all-sky surveys using SKA precursors and space-based telescopes. Ivy is also going to talk with us about the Radio Galaxy Zoo Citizen Science Project that she has been co-leader of right from the very start back in 2013. It always amazes me how researchers can have so many irons in the fire, Ivy. (laughs) Thank you, Brendan. I'll take that as a compliment. The problem with science is that scientists get into it because of their curiosity. Very good. So before we talk about your research into supermassive black holes and galactic evolution and all-sky surveys, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Ivy, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? I grew up outside of Melbourne in a suburb named One Turner South in Victoria. Yep. So I got into science by accident because when I went to uni, I wanted to be a vet. Now, me being me, I never did any biology at school before wanting to become a vet. So 
So the first year was a bit of a shocker when I realized that I didn't have the stomach for biology. So when I did a rethink and started majoring in physics and maths, I found that astronomy was pretty interesting. And so I started working with astronomy group at Melbourne University as a vacation scholar at first and then later on as a master's and a PhD student. So that's how I got into it. Fantastic. So after that successful school career, you did your undergraduate degree in physics and then stayed on for your PhD in astrophysics and then over to Yale for four years as a postdoc. What can you tell us about that research part of your career and life at Yale? So during my PhD, I actually spent half my time at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And so it introduced me to how science can be a little bit different when you're at a different institute, working with different people, where funding budgets are typically much larger. And so one that starts to work with larger scale projects. And so when I moved to the U.S. as a postdoc, I was heavily involved with quite a few of the infrared satellite telescopes. Yep. And so these are space-based infrared telescopes with which I've never had any experience before, but that was very educational and very exciting because we were at a time, at that point in time, where we could suddenly look into the dust content, we could look at shocks, we could look at all these other cool processes that we couldn't see otherwise without the space telescopes. Beautiful. Now, back to your doctorate in astrophysics, star formation and galaxy evolution of the local universe based on high pass. You used the 64-metre Parks dish before the installation of the new UWL receivers were installed, and you also used ASCAP, the SKA precursor array, as well as space-based instruments looking at UV and infrared observation, and you worked with the CSIRO ATCA array data from Narrabri. What attracts you to such multi-bandwidth astronomy? So, because my main scientific aim is to understand the physical processes that drive star formation and galaxy evolution, it's very important for us to actually try to get as broad a view as possible so that we can map the processes in greater detail at different temperatures and densities, at different wavelengths, and so each of the instruments that I've used so far has reviewed a different physical property of a galaxy or a group of galaxies or a cluster of galaxies. And so it's almost vital because each instrument provides a little piece of the jigsaw puzzle so that we can piece it all together to figure out what's going on. Now, your research into AGN supermassive black holes and galaxy evolution what questions are you asking and how are you going about to answer those questions? Okay, so primarily I look at galaxies close to us, but right next to us, because one of the toughest galaxies to study is actually the one we live in. So I tend to go further out so that I can see and picture an entire galaxy in within a snapshot yep. or two. See, the thing is we can't get out of our own galaxy, so we'll always get a biased view of the closest stellar systems or the closest gas clouds. By being able to look into the local universe, I get 
thousands of galaxies that I can study. And so I can study them in a statistical manner. I can study the gas content, the different gas phases. So whether the gas is cool, cool enough to form stars, whether it's in the atomic or molecular form, how metal rich it is, what sort of star formation histories, does it correlate with the star formation histories? Now, one of the big mysteries in galaxy evolution these days is how we control or regulate star formation. See, what happens is if you were to just allow cool gas to collapse under its own gravity, eventually you form too many stars too fast. And so by our current era or time in the universe, galaxies should no longer have any more gas to form stars. In fact, star formation should have finished by now. But the fact that we still see star formation suggests that a galaxy regulates its star formation by a multitude of different ways. Now, one of the least clearest methods of how galaxies actually regulate their star formation is through AGN. We are told by many models that by growing a central supermassive black hole, there's enough energy to keep the gas warm or enough energy to drive the gas out to prevent star formation from becoming a, you know, from occurring too efficiently or too quickly. But observational evidence for this is few and far between. And so my idea or my take on this is really to start looking at galaxies that don't have these big booming radio jets and are not that evolved, but may still be growing the central supermassive black hole. So these galaxies are typically called radio-quiet AGN. They're still forming some stars. And I'm hoping that by combining all the different observations across different wavelengths, using the cold gas content of these galaxies, I can pinpoint not only the stage of star formation it's at, but also the stage at which the supermassive black hole is evolving. And by connecting all the different dots, hopefully we can review the true picture that's occurring. So from an observer's perspective, I'm just trying to correlate different phenomena. Now, obviously, correlation is not causation. And so I would need to go back to first principles and make the relevant calculations with energy injected, etc., but we still need some observations to verify one way or not how plausible this can be. Because if we were to just use our theoretical understandings, there are just so many free parameters that are quite degenerate. And so observations are just crucial and vital to rule out some of these parameters or to constrain and provide boundary conditions. Did that sort of make sense? It certainly does. That is astonishing. That's a beautiful field of research. You must be having so much fun with it. It's mind-boggling. It's one of the true fun things is to determine which processes are important, which processes are just a distraction, even though they make things look pretty. And so separating the star formation history from the structure of the galaxy, trying to tease out the masses and the fractions of say, dark matter to gas to stars to dust. All of that is quite important because from that we can get a a fuller view of what's going on with one galaxy as well as its neighbors and hopefully can extend that upwards to, say, a population of galaxies. That is sensational. Oh, that's mind-boggling. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Ivy. I'm sure people are going to listen to that time and time again. Fantastic. So now you're at Ikra in Perth, and I know there's no such thing as a typical week for researchers such as yourself, but can you tell us what's on your plate for the next month or so? Wow. Um, hang on a sec while I literally look at my calendar. Ne- next week, I'm going observing. So I'm actually flying over to New South Wales to use the ATCA again. And so I'll be observing for about a week and a bit for one of the projects with my students. The thing about radio observations is that we get 24 hours a day observing. So I can't do it alone. So I typically bring along a colleague or a student so that I can actually take a break for 12 hours before restarting. Yep. And then after that, I've got two students graduating in June, so I assume that I'll be reading a lot of thesis drafts in May. And at the moment, I just had two students submit two of their papers into journals for refereeing. So I typically, from a day-to-day perspective, in the morning, I try to get some writing done. So whether it's reading a draft from a student or doing my own papers, I try to get that done in the morning. And then my meetings will typically start around 10 o'clock to about four or five during the day with students. Collaborations, because the large-scale projects that I'm involved with would typically span quite a few time zones. And so it's quite difficult to negotiate the, the different times for when we can all sit down and have a telecom. So typically I'm in a lot of meetings the amount of time I have for science is a few hours in the morning and a few hours in the afternoon, and then rinse and repeat. <laughs> we have things like I occasionally read proposals for the telescopes. So I help some telescopes assess telescope proposals when it comes in. I referee papers for journals in my area. That's really my next month coming up. Wow, okay. Now, we spoke with Dr. Julie Banfield three years ago, and Dr. Staz Shabala mentioned you and Radio Galaxy Zoo in a recent episode. So, could we ask you to briefly remind listeners of the development of Radio Galaxy Zoo as a citizen science project, please? Radio Galaxy Zoo is a nifty little online citizen science project that asks our citizen scientists to connect up all the discrete radio jets coming from galaxies whose central supermassive black hole is accreting matter and burping out these radio jets. So the issue with the jets is that over time, they expand away from the host galaxy and become completely disconnected from it. And so it is quite difficult sometimes to connect up the different blobs of radio jets back to its own whole store. Because depending on where this galaxy is, how much energy the central active galactic nuclei has, the extent, the shape, and the luminosity of these jets vary. And so it's quite difficult at the moment to get a machine to find them all. But we are working on that as well. And so since the start of the project is that we wanted to assemble the largest catalog of extended radio galaxies. Because up until that point, what astronomers do is do 
big radio surveys, find all the easy sources. So you can imagine this is quite incomplete and inconsistent. So this was why we started off with the Radio Galaxy Zoo Citizen Science Project, because Galaxy Zoo has found that amateur astronomers are quite keen to do real science in their own time and would volunteer their services for free and are quite good at it. So we figured, why not? Let's give it a shot and see how we go. Fantastic. Thank you, Ivy. A supplementary question on that. I believe you're working on machine learning to help out your citizen science. Could you tell us about the machine learning aspect of Radio Galaxy Zoo? Okay, so as I was mentioning before, we were seeking the help of the public to help create these very large compendia of extended radio sources. But what we soon realized was that we didn't just need a single classification per source, we needed about 20 or 30 of them to actually get a solid classification, statistically speaking. And so in the era of the next generation radio surveys, we're going to get about 7 million sources that require this. So the idea is that if we could train a machine to help out with the classifications, so note that the new surveys would be seeing about 70 million sources 10% of which will require further eyeballing. And so the idea is that when we develop these new machine learning tools, they can reduce this 10% down to a 1% so that we'll ultimately present more interesting and more complex sources to our volunteers and citizen scientists and make a more efficient job at discovering all the new radio galaxies. And so we've started creating some prototypes with my colleague here at ICRA, Chen Wu, and a couple of students overseas and across Australia at Western Sydney, at CSIRO. We've got a huge collaboration with several teams around, and we're all using very, very different methods to come at the problem at the same time. Because the problem is such a big problem that without exploring all the various techniques, we're not able to know which combination of techniques would work best for our data sets. Does that make sense? It certainly does, because we've been following getting rid of bias out of research. And that's a great way to have a lot of different teams working at the same problem from different angles is a great way to reduce bias. Exactly. And the problem with bias is that quite often, while we don't want to be biased, we typically are inherently biased. (laughs) Yep. And so reading something the other day saying that we live in a world that is information rich, but wisdom poor. Yep. We're hoping to change a little of that with machine learning. Fantastic. All the very best with that, Ivy. So that's just brilliant. Now, What about that stunning photo announced by the Event Horizon Telescope team back on April 10th? We're going to see that photo and that great photo of Dr. Katie Bowman in every science book forever now. What has been your and your colleagues' response to this historic achievement? It was the picture we've been waiting for for quite a few years, actually. It's one of the greatest achievements, I would say, in this era of imaging. Because 
Though we have seen emissions across all the different wavelengths from supermassive black holes, we have never once before seen an image right up close to an actual central supermassive black hole. So if you remember the movie Interstellar, yep. that picture was all theoretical because central supermassive black holes typically live in the centers of massive galaxies. Every galaxy is quite far away. And so to get right up close to a black hole and take a photo of it, this is phenomenal technology. And it truly required instruments across the planet to sync up and be correlated at such a level that you could reconstruct this image. This is, this is amazing. This is yeah a great test of how we understand general relativity, gravity itself, and Einstein's theories really have now been proven time and time again. Yeah, a really exciting time for everyone, not only in the astrophysics community, it was an event that sort of went way beyond that to the general public, so that's just fantastic. Now, the mic is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or equity, diversity or our quest for new knowledge, just as you've shown, or even science outreach. The microphone's all yours. Thank you very much, Brendan. So I guess one of my favourite rants may make me sound a bit age, but I think we're very lucky to live in a time of great technological advances. But then the disadvantage of this is that it creates a society that becomes complacent towards discovering new things or wanting to make further progress in technologies. And I think that we really cannot afford to take a backseat towards logic or scientific developments because while it's convenient to use an iPhone, it's completely crucial for people to want to know how an iPhone works, if that makes sense. Yep. And so without this interest and this curiosity, sadly, we risk basically going back to a time where such mockumentaries as Idiocracy might portray. And so that's my, one of my, obviously that's a comedy and a, and a bit of a spoof of a movie, but it does provide a sense of complacency that could be dangerous in our current society. I fully understand that. I do not know what the solution is because this is something that's happening at a much greater order of things, right? So we're talking about populations of people and cultural change, and that has never occurred quickly or been changed by a single person in history. Well, the great excitement, which you've just demonstrated, is a lot of the great excitement in science is not the answers you find, but in the questions you ask. Hopefully that excitement has uh, excited a lot of other people apart from myself. And I'm sure that's why you do outreach projects like Radio Galaxy Zoo. So thanks, Ivy. Is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? At the moment, we're working on all these precursors for the SKA, but eventually the SKA will get here. And when that time comes, so, you know, the project is getting commissioned and built in the near future. And so data from such facilities where the entire world come together to build a single experiment, these are the sorts of projects that will yield what we couldn't even imagine 
And that's what I'm really looking forward to. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ivy Wong. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks for your time, most importantly, and we'll encourage all listeners to get into Radio Galaxy Zoo and follow Dr. Ivy Wong, who is at owning underscore Ivy on Twitter. She does some fantastic posts. Thank you very much, Brendan. By the way, Radio Galaxy Zoo, the current generation of Radio Galaxy Zoo will be retiring at the end of the month, but we'll continue to have the next generation projects out shortly. So stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you once again, and all the very best with your research. I'm going to be following that with great pleasure. And congratulations on your work. It's just fantastic. I'm a bit of a fanboy. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again, Ian. And this is a difficult one, one because right now it's Sunday the 5th of May and this podcast will be going out on Thursday the 9th of May. So right now we're going to be talking about something in the future, but by the time this podcast goes out, it's going to be in the past. And what I'm talking about, of course, is the Eta Aquarius. So before I ask you what's up in the night sky, Ian, I'll ask you what's up with the Eta Aquarius. The Eta Aquarius are a reasonable meteor shower which favours the southern hemisphere. A lot of the really spectacular meteor showers favour the northern hemisphere, but we have a couple of good ones the Ethiopians being the premier one, and then, of course, there's the Geminids, which are shared between both the northern and southern hemisphere. So the Ethiopians are interesting because they're debris from Halley's Comet. The Orionids are another meteor shower that is debris from Halley's Comet. We're going to talk about some of the more interesting ramifications of this when we do our tangent a bit later on. Okay. The Ethiopians are a fairly reliable uh, meteor shower, the rates can vary from somewhere between 30 meteors to 50 meteors an hour with a couple of outbursts. Now, this year, there's been a predicted ZHR of 50 meteors. But again, this is the zenithal hourly rate. This is the ideal number of meteors you would see if you're in a completely dark sky site and if the meteors were appearing, uh, the radius of the meteors was appearing directly at the zenith. But of course, in the real world, this never happens especially that for the Edequarians from Australia, for example, the radiant never gets more than about 40 degrees above the horizon, which means that part of the meteors will start their burn below the horizon in some sites, especially the southern sites, and also looking through more of the gundrous atmosphere of Earth. So the fainter meteors will be harder to pick up. Now, having said that, this year is an excellent year for the Edequarians, no matter where you're going. So, because we've got no moon this uh, year, uh, last year the Aquarians were significantly disrupted by moonlight, with the moon being very close to the uh, radiant, the radiant being the apparent point where the meteors appear to originate in the sky. This year the moon is new or just past new, 
So it's this year is an excellent year for looking at the EDA Aquarians. Now, of course, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you'll tend to see the radiance a little bit higher than a lot of the Southern Hemisphere, but you also see it uh, earlier because of the date line. So the actual peak of the Eater Aquarians is May the 6th at 1400 UT. For Australians, this is midnight on May the 7th. From Australia's point of view, the radiant doesn't really rise until around about 2 o'clock. There's some variation depending on where you are in Australia. The Eater Aquarian meteor shower has a very broad peak. Theoretically, you should have been able to see uh, decent meteor rates from the 5th, also on the 6th. Then the 7th and 8th will be the, the highest numbers, and the 9th will also be a reasonable uh, number as well. And so for Australia, somewhere on the order of 20 metres per hour on the 8th, possibly also on the 17th, and then it begins to, to drop off. So that translates out to be about a meteor once every three minutes if you're in a, a dark sky site. If you're in a more suburban location, once every six minutes or so. So that, that may sound fairly often, but if you've ever sat there watching meteors, six <laughs> minutes drag by. <laughs> yes, indeed. As I said, I've been using the NASA uh, prediction software, but I've also created my own Excel spreadsheet to predict the uh, number of meteors for Australia. And comfortingly, it gives me uh, roughly the same uh, number of meteors as the NASA site. So I'll be going out in the morning and I've got uh, my recording software set up so I can record the number of meteors I see and hopefully make a bit more of a scientific effort this time. And I'll be going out too. It'll be a naked eye event for me. And for a lot of people, that's the best way to see it. But if you have some digital way of recording it, that's excellent as well. So Ian, can you tell us what's up in the night sky for the next two weeks and the morning sky, I suppose? In the evening sky, we've got three bright planets. And in the morning sky, we've got three bright planets visible. Not the same three bright planets, but two overlap. So if you're looking in the evening sky, from about astronomical twilight, you can see Mars uh, above the western horizon. Now, uh, as this is going out on the 9th, the moon will have moved past Mars but Mars is still very close to the two bright stars that mark the tips of the horns of Boris the Bull. And if you watch Mars over the next fortnight, you'll see Mars move away from the horns of the bull towards Gemini the Twins, and it'll come by the end of the period covered by this recording, it'll come very close to the brightish star Gamma Gemorium, which will look very nice as you follow it from night to night. If you turn towards the eastern sky, the brightest object above the eastern horizon is Jupiter. And Jupiter's not too far below the constellation of Scorpio. Scorpius is, from Australia, it represents a curled question mark on its side, whereas in the northern hemisphere, you'll see it more upright in the traditional Scorpion-type format and not too far away from the bright red star Antares. Antares meaning the arrival of Mars, so you'll have a rather beautiful view of the Scorpion, and then uh, below that the wash of the Milky Way with uh, Jupiter in the wash of the Milky Way, and below that again the next brightest object is uh, our friend Saturn. Jupiter is now high enough above the horizon in the mid-evening 
that it's a good telescope object. You can put your, your telescopes on Saturn now, but you might find that horizon murk and turbulence will make it a less rewarding target. Although I must say, even under the worst of conditions, I always find watching Saturn very rewarding. In Southern Hemisphere, we're heading towards winter, so the skies are getting calmer and clearer. And in the Northern Hemisphere, you're heading towards summer, so the skies are getting a little bit more turbulent. So uh, Mercury, which has been with us for quite some time now, has vanished from the uh, horizon. It's too close to the sun to be seen now. But we can still see Venus. Venus is a lot lower to the horizon, but it's still easily seen an hour before sunrise. And something that will be of interest, but will require uh, uh, either binoculars or a small telescope to see, is the close approach of Venus and Uranus. Now, Uranus is... Um, Emotionally uh, bright enough to see with the unaided eye, although at magnitude 5.9, it's right on the limits yep. of observation. But if you uh, follow this with binoculars, you'll see uh, Uranus heading towards Venus. And on the 19th, which is effectively the uh, end of this recording period, Venus and uh, Uranus are about a finger width apart, easily seen together in a pair of binoculars. Uranus will be the second brightest object in your binocular field apart from Venus. And if you have a small telescope, you might be able to get the broad field lens. You might be able to get Venus and Uranus in the same field. What a nice challenge. Interesting challenge indeed. Okay. Do you have a tangent for us for this episode, Ian? I do have a tangent for you, and we've been discussing the meteor shower that will have gone by the time this recording goes out. But have you ever wondered, do other planets have meteor showers? Ah, good question. Very likely that they do. Both Mars and Venus are suggested to have meteor showers. In fact, one of the meteor showers for Mars is likely to be the same debris of Halley's Comet that forms the Orionids on Earth. And there are others for example, some strong streams from the comet Enneke potentially going to cause meteor showers on Mars. There's something like 10 meteor showers uh, suggested to occur on Mars from streams, some of which uh, cause meteor showers on Earth, and others that have no counterpart. For example, 13P Alders, uh, the comet which uh, potentially will cause uh, meteor showers uh, in the southern hemisphere of Mars. Some will also impact Venus, but I think they'll be very difficult for a Venusian observer. We do have a potential observer on Mars. We have the rovers on Mars. They did try and look for meteor showers, but with the cameras that they have, they're not really designed for uh, low-light work. And so far, they've now seen no verified uh, meteors because the, the best time to observe meteors is when it's darkest. That's also the time when it's coldest on Mars, which is not really good for the rovers. So they tend not to wake them up. But even though uh, finding the light from the meteors is uh, quite difficult, they can find them by the same way that radio amateurs and radar enthusiasts have been picking up meteors by looking at the echoes from the ionised trails. And uh, they've had a look at that and they've picked up 
at least a couple of meteor showers through the ionisation, and that's quite interesting. And they've got 10 uh, meteor showers, uh, which eight of those uh, meteor showers that they've discovered by the radio wave reflections correspond to uh, eight of the predicted meteor showers looking at cometary debris orbits. Uh, if you remember Comet Siding Spring, which was uh, the comet which came very, very close to Mars and had its coma uh, immersed in Mars. And there's some evidence that Comet Siding Spring also produced a meteor shower as well as uh, putting a lot of uh, dusty debris in uh, Mars' upper atmosphere, which is quite interesting, in uh, 2004. So Mars has the potential for some lots of interesting meteor showers. That's fantastic, Ian, and it's another great example of how science is powerful, not only by the answers it provides, but what comes first, the power of science comes through the questions that people ask. Indeed. Another question is, but are there meteor showers on exoplanets? And to have a meteor shower on an exoplanet, you would need to first have a comet or, uh, or something like that that produces debris. And the something that we've observed uh, recently is uh, exocomets around Beta Victoris. Now, Beta Victoris is one of the first systems where we first imaged a dust disk around it, then we uh, actually imaged a large exoplanet around Beta Victoris. We've even got a video of Beta Victoris B uh, orbiting its, um, its apparent star, which was quite amazing. But now we've got, we've got uh, evidence that there's not just a series of exocomets, but there's two separate exocomet uh, streams around um, Beta Victoris. And they work it out that these are comets rather than planets by the nature of the, the dips in the light uh, around Beta Victoris B when it's, it's occulted by these streams of um, exoplanets. Recently, the TESS spacecraft, which is uh, designed to look for exoplanets and in one sense be uh, the successor to Kepler, uh, has also detected exocomets around Beta Victoris B. That's, that's pretty mind-boggling. That's very cool. I'll get in touch with Dr. Jessie Christensen, who we interviewed a couple of years ago about exoplanets. She's working on the TESS mission. and. Yeah. We'll get her to give us an update on exocomets and exometeor showers. That's astonishing, Ian. Oh, that's what I thought too. I was I just had this idea. Oh, what, what wonder if there's meteor shower because I remember the meteor shower from Comet Siding Spring because that was uh, the Comet Siding Spring coming so close to Mars. There was lots of predictions about what would happen with the dusty debris and its potential for a meteor shower. Then I thought, well, what about standard meteor showers? And then you do all this and you come up with uh, the exocomets and you're going, okay, right, there's lots, of, there's lots of interesting things out there that you have, just haven't had a chance to look for. And yeah, it's, it's really, really quite interesting. Astonishing times. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ian Musgrave. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. You have a great time. Cheers. And here is the Astrophys News. We have often reported on the so far mysterious FRB phenomena, fast radio bursts, 
and have interviewed researchers like Dr. Emily Petroff, Dr. J.P. McQuart, PhD student Laura Dressen, and Dr. Manisha Kaleb. If you want to hear firsthand from these researchers, go back and check out episodes 32, 35, 52, and 54. And to get the skinny on magnetars, Dr. Matthew Bales is great in episode 56. Now, why mention magnetars in the same breath as FRBs? About 80 FRBs have been observed so far, including two repeating ones. And there are currently 48 theories about the origins or cause of these FRBs listed on the FRB wiki page, but a new one has just got a lot of traction. You'll recall one of the repeaters gave astronomers a rare chance to hunt down this source's host galaxy. FRB 121102 was isolated to a star-forming, low-metallicity dwarf galaxy located roughly 3 billion light-years away, and a dimmer, persistent radio source was discovered in the same region that produced the bursts. This localization lent support to one theory for the origin of FRB 121102, and possibly other FRBs, that the bursts are powered by a magnetised neutron star born decades ago in a superluminous supernova. Superluminous supernovae are at least 10 times more powerful than standard supernovae. The extreme brightness is thought to be due to the birth of a neutron star with extremely strong magnetic fields, a magnetar, that spins on millisecond timescales emitting radiation and winds as its magnetic field decays and further powering the explosion. A team of 12 astrophysicists led by Tarana F. Dakari from the Howard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics have successfully tested this theory by tracking down known superluminous supernovae and searching them for signs of co-located, persistent or bursting radio sources. Using the VLA, Eftikari and the team discovered a persistent radio source present with the superluminous supernovae PTF-10HGI that went off about one and a half billion light years away. This is the first time a radio source of any kind has ever been associated with a superluminous supernova, providing an important link between these explosions and other phenomena. So while a FRB wasn't found coincident with the superluminous supernova, the team's observations were only 40 minutes long, and they will no doubt conduct longer observations to possibly discover a co-located FRB and bolster this theory. From cosmosmagazine.com, a report from a NASA conference. Last week, NASA used an international conference to wargame a scenario in which a newly discovered asteroid moved from having a 1% chance of striking the Earth to actually obliterating a big chunk of New York City. 
This exercise was conducted as a way of exploring possible responses to a situation that, should it ever arise, will be of global and perhaps existential import. The scenario was played out over the course of five days at the International Academy of Astronautics 2019 Planetary Defence Conference in College Park, Maryland. It's a great story, with no help at all from Bruce Willis. So read it at cosmosmagazine.com. Finally, Ikra has done it again. This is a press release from April 29. Astronomers have discovered rapidly swinging jets coming from a black hole almost 8,000 light-years from Earth. Published in the journal Nature, the research shows jets from V404 Cygni's black hole behaving in a way never seen before on such short timescales. The jets appear to be rapidly rotating with high-speed clouds of plasma, potentially just minutes apart, shooting out from a black hole in different directions. Lead author, Associate Professor James Miller-Jones from McCurtain University Node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, said black holes are some of the most extreme objects in the universe and this is one of the most extraordinary black hole systems I've ever come across, he said. Like many black holes, it's feeding on a nearby star, pulling gas away from a star and forming a disk of material that encircles the black hole and spirals towards it under gravity. Fantastic. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.